0: Just to warn listeners, this episode contains some explicit language and occasional references to drug use. You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the journalist and author Bryony Gordon. Bryony first gained both notoriety and a loyal readership a decade ago when, as a 27 year old single woman living in Camden, she was given a Girl About Town column in The Telegraph. Her honesty, warmth, and self deprecating humour soon established her as one of the paper's star writers. She has since been lauded for writing and campaigning about mental health, detailing her own struggles in the best selling book Mad Girl. Her third book, Eat, Drink, Run is about a personal journey that led her to running the London Marathon and is out in May. But before that, there was The Wrong Knickers, her first memoir about her 20s that she describes as a decade of chaos.
1: 2018. I, well, it came out in 2014. Right. Fuck. Can I swear on this? Of course you can. So, um, uh, so I wrote it after I had my daughter. I wrote it on maternity leave. You know, I'd heard that. There's this <laughs> rumour that goes around journalists where
0: everyone's like, when am I going to write my book? How do I write my book? And everyone says, did you hear Bryony Gordon wrote hers when she was on maternity leave. No, the rumour I heard is that you wrote it, you started writing it when you were pregnant.
1: No. No. No, I think I signed, I think I signed the deal, like... Two weeks after I gave birth, fucking hell. We touted it around when I was pregnant, but I couldn't start writing it until I had, until I was like over to the other side. Yeah. So like, as long as I had my non my marital status confirmed and I was a mother, then I could start writing it. But I couldn't start writing it before then because I was like, everything's going to go wrong, and I'm going to end up back being that. Yeah, I of get me. that. When when the wrong necklace came out, which was May 2000 or well, June 2014. Everyone was like, was it, was it really hard to write? And I I was like, no, it wasn't. It was really, because, you know, I was through it. I I know I was married and I had a child and, you know, I'd grown up. So, Mm. which was bollocks because, Mm. well, it wasn't bollocks. I was married and I did have a child, but I had not grown up. Mm. Like I was still quite chaotic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Still am quite chaotic. But no, I wrote it. Yeah, I wrote it on maternity leave and, um, it was sort of a bit of a saving grace for me because I wrote it while my daughter was asleep babies sleep a lot (laughs) and also here's the thing everyone was like it's gonna be oh you'll never sleep again I was like dude I had a chronic cocaine habit in my (laughs) 20s I know. I have been rehearsing I, for a newborn. How bad can it be? <laughs> like, how bad can it be? Because I was often, you know, like waking up at four in the morning or five in the morning with a baby crying is way better than like going to sleep at four uh, or five, five in the yeah, morning. totally. Yeah, With nothing to show but, you know, sweat and self-loathing. and and then you know she'd wake up and then she'd go back to sleep till like 10 so I basically would get a lie in and then at night obviously they go to bed very early babies when they're newborns they don't really do anything they just sort of cry and then you feed them oh no I mean I don't know it was a long time ago now well I've got a four and a half year old now but anyway and then in the evening she'd go to bed and I would sit there with a glass of wine or several glasses of wine and I'd write and it was it was like my salvation because I was keeping my brain going and is it, I, I've read you say
0: before that you could never have written that book while you were in the thick of it. No, absolutely not. And I think with my book, it charters a similar, a similar-ish ch- territories hmm. in terms of personal
1: By the demons. way, I love your book, Dolly. And I just Thank want to you. say that... Um, You're basically 10 years younger than me, which I think is really good because if I said this to you earlier, I feel like we have gone drinking together and I was pretty like, more champagne. You were amazing that (laughs) evening. You were like
0: exactly what I always hoped journalists were. You were practically like ringing a bell for more champagne. (laughs) Not just for us, for everyone.
1: Yeah. I think it's just as well that it only happened once. But I, I, I love your book, and it made. Oh, uh, I mean, I don't want. I don't want to give any spoilers. <laughs> but a lot, so much of it made me laugh. But also, there was uh, what I, what I think is great is this sort of this honesty about it. You're not, you're not scared. This is going to sound terrible. I don't mean to say, but you're mm. not scared to show not the ugly bits of yourself. No, no, there no, are no ugly bits. But you know, I think it's really important when we to kind of. I certainly feel this when I go on Instagram, as I show the 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 ugly sides of myself as well as the 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 frankly stunning sides of myself. (laughs) And I think it's really important. And you, you know, when you write about when your best friend gets engaged and your reaction to it, and I was like there, Mm. I was fucking there. Mm. And it's so great that we're now that you've written a book that is honest like that. And now that it's because a few years ago. You know, I remember when The Wrong Knickers came out, Jenny Murray, who should probably know better, wrote this piece. So I remember was that piece. Sl- slagging off me, slagging off Catelyn Moran yeah. and Lily Allen. Like, do these women have no shame? Yeah. And actually and, and actually it was just women being honest about their feelings and their ex- life experiences. And I love now that, you know, it is it is not considered shameless to write about your experiences.
0: I look back on when I was reading The Wrong Liquors and I was still very much in the thick of it when I read that book. In fact, I think I remember tweeting you because I couldn't stop reading it. So I carried it around with me everywhere. (laughs) And I went out one Saturday night to a gig and I drank I took in a bottle of Glenn's vodka in in my knickers Classy. I took it into the gig um, and it was like not even a ravey gig it was like a folk singer who's Christian well that's what because of course you needed a bottle of Glenn's <laughs> vodka in your knickers it was at the Union Chapel as well where they don't serve booze I got completely Ooh. hammered on my own started sort of shouting out mad requests to the singer got in a bit of trouble and then my friends, I then wanted to go on to a party afterwards and my friends were like, I think you should probably go home. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. And the last image they have of me was me on the overground doing like a funny Egyptian dance through the window <laughs> with them being like, oh God, what have we done? And that night I left my copy because it was so smashed of the wrong knickers on the overground. And I was like, this just feels like this has come full circle. Well,
1: was that the night that you ended up sitting in the bar with the old man? Or was that a different night? Different night. Was that which pub was that? Was that Quinn's? No, I do love that pub. Then no, that was the <laughs> Fiddler's Elbow. Uh-huh.
0: but when I was reading it, I think something clicked in my head, and it's the same thing that opened up when I first watched Girls, where I suddenly realised, oh, I am allowed to tell my stories. I am mm. allowed to tell my stories, and it doesn't make me attention-seeking, trivial, silly, or embarrassing. I can tell my stories in a way that is entertaining and truthful and moving and they're just as brilliant as all the male writers telling yes. their stories. And I think I hadn't believed that until I watched girls read Lena Dunham's work and read your book. I think it was it was very um, seminal for me and it marked a moment where I realized that I had things to draw on from my life experience that could be interesting. And I think probably a lot of young female writers felt that when they read your book.
1: But also there's, I think there was always this sense when people say, oh, but nothing's really happened in my life. And then actually, like nothing really happened in my 20s out of the ordinary, but it was it was sort of writing about that, my niche of daily life and the things that we, I remember writing it thinking, I cannot be the only 20-something who... Really wants a boyfriend, yeah. But then really feels bad about wanting a boyfriend because mm. you know I'm not. I, this is not a very feminist thing to be desiring. And these were just sort of normal feelings I felt every day, and no one was really, you know, I, I no one was rearticulating really them, or you know, just getting drunk was such a normal thing for me, mm. and yet no one, no one was really writing about it honestly.
0: And how long? I was trying to work out, because the first time that I came across your writing and properly fell in love with it was when I read your first memoir, The Wrong Knickers. But you had been writing a personal column, a first-person column, for quite a long time, hadn't you?
1: Yeah, since 2007. So how old were you when you started writing that column? 27. So it was a bit like your column Mm. at the back of the Sunday Times. Mm. It was me and someone older. Oh, I didn't realize it was someone older as well. Yeah, um, it was. It was basically it was me, single girl about town, and then there was a journalist called Lucy Cavendish, yeah, who was married with four children. Yeah. So it was like, and lived in the country. So it was like these, and it, it came from we did a life swap for a feature, and the readers really liked it. So um, the editor of the supplement Stella in the Sunday Telegraph sort of decided that it would make a fun column and i'm still writing it now so that's a decade of writing that. yeah but it's obviously it's sort of changed a little bit so now it's me and my mum writing it which i hate writing it why it's the worst it's literally my least favorite thing to write every week because because i have to because it's just you know it's like never work with children or animals or your mum (laughs) <laughs> right okay yeah yeah. And, uh yeah nobody's nobody's going but no but so I was very much writing this column throughout my single years. I look back now at my 20s and think god I was lucky I didn't lose my job because I was I was wild. Mm. I was crazy. And what I did was was I basically turned that wild and cra- wildness and craziness into a
0: career into a career, which well, was... you did a lot more than that. You're also like one of their star interviewers.
1: but it was only that my my sort of willingness to mm. take the piss out of myself and be like, you know, the performing monkey. And it was and it was kind of, it, you know, my, my kind of craziness sort of slightly spun out of control because I was like, well, there's a column in this. Of course, I couldn't write half of the stuff that was happening to me because it would have literally the the readers would have, their eyes would have popped out of their heads yeah. while they were reading. Because it's still The Telegraph. It's still The Telegraph. It's funny, actually, because there are a lot of readers who sort of... You know, these still session to me, I was so relieved that you got married and had a child.
0: Well, it's funny when I came when I was writing down the questions to to ask you today, I was thinking, oh, there's so much I know about Britney and her love life and her personal life and her private life. And I know better than to assume that as someone who's been in your position of writing that column in that you must feel like people feel they have a stake over your personal life and that they understand you and can analyse you better than you ever could. Well, they do. <laughs> I
1: keep very little to myself. Do you th- really feel that? That's amazing no, if you have that kind there's of... Always, there's always, there's always, there's certain things I, I don't, I don't offer for, but I don't know, like I've made a career out of honesty. Yeah. So... You know, there was the wrong nickers, And then after that, I, I, I wrote about my mental health and my mental ill health. And that was like the moment Yeah, my career completely changed. Yeah. And it yeah. went in a completely different direction.
0: I would like you to tell me the story of your first love. I was going to
1: say my mum.
0: I was obsessed with my mum when I was little.
1: I was obsessed with my mum and obviously not like romantically. That's That would be fucking weird. Um, I don't think anyone thought that, Brian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up.
1: <laughs> um, but I I just like, I didn't know. I Just the worst thing in my life would be if something happened to my mum. Mm. I remember to have like nightmares that she'd taken up smoking or something. It's ridiculous. I, I smoke like a chimney. Um, and, and you know, and and I just used to kind of worship her. Mm. I was so, I was so, <laughs> she was probably, it was probably a sign of how I would be in relationships to come. I would literally follow her around. And she's a journalist as well, your mum, isn't she? she? Is she's a, a journalist. Gordon. So I was just like, I'll do what she does because I want to be just like my mum. Do you think there was something in that? I don't know. I just loved writing. I loved journalism. I was surrounded by journalists. I was surrounded by, you know, we used to come down at breakfast and there'd be like every national newspaper on the kitchen table. Mm. So, And now with your
0: mum, what are the kind of similarities and differences between you? I think it's
1: that kind of thing where she really profoundly irritates me now. (laughs) Really? And I think that's because I see me in her. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't really profoundly irritate me, but do you know what I mean. No, like I, am less, I'm a less adoring of her, and more like, mom, so good.
0: Yeah, but I think there's also something that happens with your parents as you get older, where increasingly you see bad habits in them
1: that that you've inherited. I also feel just generally for my mum's generation, I feel kind of sorry for them because I see all these issues that they had which they just never had an opportunity to address yeah very few did yeah you know it wasn't the dumb thing to talk about but, your problems but that's
0: why I think we've got to go this might be controversial but that's why I think we've got to go a little easy on the second and third wave feminists yeah when they say this crazy shit that doesn't make sense to us yeah I think we have to remember that we have a language and an openness and a support system which that n- they just no. didn't have so for them these are issues that they've like repressed
1: for years you know I totally agree and I think yeah I think that's what I feel I feel like I've had these opportunities that perhaps my parents didn't Mm. well
0: Vanessa Kirby who's the first guest she said she thinks that our parents generation are just far less likely to look at their stuff
1: yeah which which maybe is a good way to be (laughs) yeah maybe So I was never, I was never cool. I was never sort of never mysterious. Like no, nothing mysterious same. about me, uh, apart from the. F- but that's also kind of great. Apart from what apart were you going to go from, there? Apart from maybe the fact I sucked my thumb till I was twenty five. Oh my god! You know I sucked my thumb as well. Do you? We really are the same person. We same person. <laughs> You're like twice the height of me. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm an adult thumb sucker. <laughs> I've just come clean about it recently. Actually, um, I'm so embarrassed about it.
1: What? Do you have a blankie?
0: No, but you famously (laughs) lost your blankie when you interviewed Justin Timberlake. No, no, you're complaining two separate incidents.
1: (laughs) What happened with your blankie? I got sent to Los Angeles to cover the Oscars and um, I was 25. I don't know what, I don't know how I met. Well, I mean, like bonkers. And. I was packing. I was leaving the hotel and I was packing to go and I realised I couldn't find Blanky. <laughs> and I called down to reception and they were like, ma'am, would you like us? I apologise to anyone who is American listening to this in my terrible accent. Uh, ma'am, would you like us to send security up? And I was like, no, you don't understand. No one would have stolen Blanky. It's basically <laughs> like a manky cardigan that I've had since I was like three. It was like when my mum my went into hospital once for something quite routine but I was really little I was like she's never coming out again she's dying you know the drama thing yeah, yeah. and I took the cardigan because it smelled of her and I know it's very odd um, no
0: it's not weirdly as well nearly every single one of my best friends still has a comfort blanket and I know all the genders and names of okay, all of well them okay well this is a thing so yeah. it's I'm, a whole person I realised I've
1: lost Blanky. yeah was he a boy well or? this is a thing I didn't know what was more disturbing the fact that I was so upset about losing Blanky, or the fact that I had I'd given an agenda to yeah. Blanky. I was like, I can't leave LA without him. Yeah, it's always a he. It's odd, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? patriarchy. Yeah. The patriarchy, even in our comfort blankets. Uh, and the woman on reception, she was like, I, uh, I used to have, uh, when I was five, I lost my like toy elephant. I'm like, I'm 25. <laughs> but I never, but it's really, yeah. And now my daughter has a blankie, Um And I sometimes steal it off her. Do you? <laughs> and snuffle it. Yeah. Apparently, a lot of thumb
0: suckers it's it's something called oral fixation are also people who often have problems with eating and smoking, yeah, and yeah. drinking and drinking, yeah, which is interesting. It's about comfort through the mouth so a lot of the journey that you charted in in your twenty something life was as you touched on this kind of pursuit of love and this need, mm-hmm. not need, this desire for that kind of stability and I think it's really cool that you were honest about that because I think that is what a lot of people want. And is it, did you, have you had that since you were a teenager, that kind of desire? Oh my God. Well, sort of fantasy world. And is it always, is the fantasy always me and long-term monogamy husband, like being settled?
1: Yeah, it was kind of, I think, like in your book, when you write about this, like a, a kind of man you met on Tinder and you were hungover and, you know, before you've even got on the date, you'd sort of, you were married and living yeah, in America yeah. or, you know, and I was like that. I yeah. was like, I don't even know who this person is, but already I've kind of put them on this kind of massive pedestal. But I wasn't like a serial monogamist. I couldn't, I couldn't settle that. I I craved it. And yet I went for entirely unsuitable men. Right, that's interesting. But why do you think you did that? Was it Okay, so here's the thing. I think that you want what you think you're worth. Yeah, I really that's believe true. that. Yeah. And there's the sort of the highs, like I've realized the highs and the crashing lows, you know, those are all part of you know, I'm an addict <laughs> and mm. that's a sort of addictive behaviour. Mm, mm. Um you're not looking for someone who's gonna kind of who's normal and who's, you know, Although I ended up with someone who's mm. quite normal, but that was more of a sort of... I was just, well, I couldn't... I was desperate, desperate. I was in a relationship well, it wasn't even a relationship, really? I was having an affair with a married man, and it was just like my soul was kind of disappearing. Yeah, bit by bit. And I met this really nice man. Who I thought was very ordinary. <laughs> I remember in the book, you in the
0: wrongnickers, you had particular, you took particular umbrage with the fact you lived in Clapham. Oh my god, I
1: was like, fuck off, <laughs> Clapham. Do You know where I live now, <laughs> Clapham. Um, <laughs> this is this is what's going to happen
0: to you, Dolly. Clapham's where I'm headed. And that thing that you said about the addict in you, kind of perhaps seeking out these highs and lows. Mm everywhere and and in love do you think that it was about kind of i read something recently that about the difference between pleasure and happiness Mm. and about how fulfillment and contentment is something that's long term and that you don't feel often in huge waves no, you feel sort of serenity. Exactly. Whereas with pleasure it's often
1: short lived and you have to sort of top it every time. Yeah. So I heard this I heard someone say this the other day, a friend of mine who's also in recovery, and they said, you know, I had a lot of fun in my twenties and thirties, but I wasn't happy. Yeah. There's a, yeah. like massive difference. By and large, anything that provides you with instant gratification is probably not, is not going to be sort of... Is, is Well, it can't be everything. No, it's it can't not, be it's, everything. It's, it's probably something you should avoid. Yeah.
0: <laughs> or if you're if you're not an addict, which yeah. as we oh. know is a disease, if you're not an addict, then it's something you need to be doing like... Moderately.
1: Moderately, but exactly. I could never do anything moderately. Like, people used to say to me, why don't you just have one? And I'd be like, why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> why would I have one? Like... Now, if someone came up to me tomorrow or today, or if you said to me right now, (laughs) Dolly, if you said, Brian, they've just this moment, I've just got breaking news, breaking news. They've just created a uh, a form of medication that if you take it, it means you'll only ever want to drink one or two drinks. I'd be like, I don't want to take that. Yeah, yeah. I want oblivion. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to just have one or two drinks. And that's fine. And I like, and I don't feel, I did feel, I did feel obviously very sad when I realised I had to give it up. And it took me a very long time. Um, And to get to the stage where I could get any lasting sobriety. I I went into treatment, I went to like an outpatient rehab centre in London. And my counsellor there was like, I I said oh when people ask me why I'm going to why I'm not drinking I'll be like oh I drank my lifetime's quota by the age of 37 <laughs> and he was like you drank five people's lifetime quota by the age of 37 <laughs> Bryony. like I've had a lot of fun with yeah. booze and now it's time for something else Yeah and I like I really love being sober it's like it's it's amazing Mm. it's just sound like so preachy but it's genuinely I think it's wonderful to hear and that isn't something I if you'd got me five months ago or even four or three months ago I I would have been like "Ah, when does this you know I was Mm. sort of hanging on by my fingertips kind of but it's oh it just sort of gets better and better and it's
0: about now more kind of the things you're gaining rather than the
1: stuff you've lost yeah it's really it's a really positive i I suppose it's all about yeah it's about sort of positivity and being grateful for things Mm. and i mean it's incredibly cheesy i mean i i do the sort of 12-step program so aa and na i I know you're supposed to be anonymous i can say that i do that i can't tell you who else does it um (laughs) that's that's the thing but i love it it's an amazing program and um You know, it's taught me... I I almost can't believe that I managed to stay alive for so long. I lacked so much self-awareness until quite recently.
0: Well, I was going to say, if you were to go back to you in the thick of the wrong knickers decade, Mm. if you were to go back to her now and say, Bryony, just to let you know, this is where you're headed and it's all going to be fine, but at 37, you're going to be an NA and AA. What do you think she would have said to you? Would she have been surprised?
1: Well, I think I was surprised when I was, I was surprised. I was surprised quite recently by the fact that I, someone, someone said to me, so I tried to give up alcohol a couple of times and it didn't work. And a friend said to me, a friend in recovery took me to this treatment center and I had like a kind of session with the guy that runs it and he was like, All right. He was like, It sounds like you suffer from alcohol use disorder. And I was like, that sounds vaguely medical. Yeah, so I'll take that. It's basically just another way for saying alcoholic. Yeah. Um he said, and you know, you're an active addiction and you have a choice between being an active addiction or in recovery. And I was mm-hmm. like, addiction? Not me. I'm not an addict. Excuse me. And like, the first thing I did was like go home via the co op. I had a backpack on and I put like eight massive bottles of Peroni <laughs> in my backpack. I was like clinking along. So it's only recently that I have accepted that fact. So I think if I was, I think if you told me that it, when I, uh, 10 years ago, I would have been like, no, I'm just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, But the problem is you probably were like everyone else. Well, I think if I look back at it, right, I don't, if I look back at my behaviour in my 20s, yes, there were a lot of people doing the same thing, but I always took it that little bit too far. Mm. But, you know, it wasn't all bad. You know, it was fun. I had a fuck of a lot of fun. Yeah. But it got to the point, I felt, you know, most, there are a lot of people in their 20s and what happens is they grow up and they stop doing that and and I couldn't. I feel a bit bad that the wrong knickers is sort of like starts with all this chaos and ends with and then I got married and had a baby and everything was fine but I didn't I thought I was fine I thought I was fine but the thing is as well is you you probably
0: were fine as in I can't speak for you and only you know the pain that you were in but in terms of where you were in your life at that moment even though now looking back in the, as a bigger picture mm. you can be like oh no that was me functioning on 10% of what i could be yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time you that the truth for you probably was that that You'd arrived and you were really happy
1: and everything was fine. Yeah, I think that's true. And I and I think actually, I think it's sort of it's a progressive illness. And I think I probably managed to arrest it for a little bit yeah. for a few years. Yeah, and then after the marathon, like it was like May and it was sunny. Oh, and it's that the was, worst. It was that hitting yeah. the booze hard. Yeah, and I knew it was. I knew it was over. <laughs> I knew I, it was like the last days of disco. Well, and- I knew. I knew that. I knew I was gonna. I knew. I knew I. Was an alcoholic. A.A. Gill says
0: that on the way down to his treatment centre, he and his dad drank a bottle of vintage champagne on the train. People often do that. Mm. I certainly did this for years before I got to a much healthier place. Mm. I had to be like a tourist into a healthier life for a bit. Yeah. I had to just see what it was. See what my future might be and then come back to, you know. And but then. But also, once
1: you, the thing is, once you've seen that healthier lifestyle, and you go back to your old yeah. lifestyle, your life. Yeah, like, it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. And so then drinking got really, like I knew it was the wrong thing to be doing. So it was really unpleasant and mm. not at all fun. Mm. And like, why do I keep doing this? Mm. And every morning, you know, the waking up kind of like, oh, fuck. Having to check like WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram. In fact, so many, there's so many mediums through which you have to check. You haven't made a tit out of yourself I now, The one I have
0: started doing, which I really don't like, is I've started doing only Instagram stories when I'm drunk. It's the only time I do Instagram stories and it's nearly always me doing a silly dance.
1: Yeah, but I think that's wonderful. And I, I would Satisfying like you to continue, you know, doing a funny dance. If it's, that's it's the thin I, end of the wedge, if of like. If that's the worst thing yeah. you do when you're drunk, that's no, you're wonderful. Right.
0: Yeah. But also I think I've now got there was a period of my life where I was like maybe maybe I just can't have this in my life. And actually what I soon realized was I'm not an addict. I'm someone who when I'm not feeling good about myself you know when I have when I my self-esteem is at rock bottom Mm. and then I use alcohol that's when things are disastrous Mm. disastrous so like this month is quite a stressful month, so I've taken a month off drinking. So now I'm much better at, like... That's really... I mean, that's fucking grown
1: up. You're 29. I hate you. You're
0: perfect. She's perfect. No, but do you know what? It's
1: just... She's written a beautiful book. She's beautiful. She's tall. (laughs) She's already
0: worked out. But do you know what? It's it's risk assessment for me now. Yeah, it's a very good way of looking at it. But it's the same with, oh, my ex-boyfriend and his new wife are at a party. I'm going to have one drink the risk is so huge here of how i'm going to feel and how i'll I'll drink and how that will make me behave so it's like but some people are so mad as you say that i still can't get my head around is some people don't even have to be that conscious about it (laughs) some people it's just second nature to just i know have that assessment Unconsciously,
1: but I, you know, I would never. I would be like that situation. I would be like, I would be ordering cocaine. Yeah, I would be, you know, I would be drinking. You know, I. My assessment of the situation would be so skewed and so wrong. So I think it's amazing. Made the best and hardest assessment ever, which is you can't have it in your life. No, but it's fine. I'm drinking a lovely glass of water. (laughs) And I'm incredibly smug. So anyway, I don't like a mocktail. I've never really liked cocktails. Too much sugar. And I tried a non-alcoholic beer. It was heinous. Really? And my ca- someone said to me, yeah, my counsellor said to me, non-alcoholic beer is for non-alcoholics. <laughs> I
0: think that's <laughs> so true. I was like,
1: I wasn't drinking beer because I liked the taste of it.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Uh, like, if
1: I go out now, which I don't really do that often, <laughs> I'll have, you know, like a fizzy water with some lime squeezed in it. One of the uh,
0: things that my brother, my little brother, said to my mum once that I think she found most disturbing of anything that's come out of her children's mouths was last year at Christmas. My mum said, Ben, would you like a glass of wine with your meal? And he said, rather in a surly way, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, I don't drink socially. <laughs> My mum was so upset by this, and he was like, "It's common sense." He's like, "I only drink to get plastered. I don't care about I
1: don't drinking have with a, a meal." Glass of wine with my my yeah. mum always thought that I was because I would go round to the family house, and I would never drink because I because what's was, the point? I yeah. was really fucking hungover or coming oh, down yeah,
0: yeah. as well. Yeah, that's the way. There was a period of my life where. I always ruined Christmas for myself because I'd go out on some huge bender. On Christmas Eve Eve. Yeah, on Christmas Eve Eve. Yeah. And not go to bed or whatever. And then turn up for Christmas, my mum would be like so excited about seeing me. (laughs) And I'd like put on a horrible, like my dad's like old cricket jumper and then just like watch Friends in my room (laughs) (laughs) and be like the opposite of Christmas family cheer. (laughs) And it was so nice. This year was like, I had a real moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm like, my head is clear as a bell I can peel the potatoes and I can help my mum with you know the light up reindeer outside or whatever mad thing she's doing but for years and years that's how I just and then I'd sort of just sleep through all of Christmas mm. and feel so guilty and horrible I never felt guilty horrible <laughs> On to the next love story.
1: I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. Tell me a story of unrequited love. Every, almost everyone I ever fell in love with didn't love me back. And I sort of said, I sort of touched on it earlier. And I think, and my brain used to say, well, that's because you're unlovable, Bryony, and mm-hmm. you're shit, and you're, you're not hot, and you're, you know, you're too fat, and all of that. But actually it was because I was I had chronically low self esteem and I would fix fixate on I was just used to that sort of to not being loved. Is that it became like yeah, a And that's what you thought you were worthy of, perhaps? Yeah, so there we go. So that so that phrase, you want what you think you're worth. Yeah. Yeah. So unrequited love was something that seemed really it defined my twenties mm. and my and my teens. And actually, I look back now and I think I see pictures of myself in my twenties and my teens. And, I, and I'm like, why didn't you? Why didn't you have more confidence, Brian mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know. And and I didn't even notice the people that that were interested or who could have loved me or who did love me. Do you know that 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 there were people? Yeah, and mm-hmm. I tended to just kind of treated them really badly. Mm. I had relationships with men who certainly fancied me, um, Mm. you know, and they certainly lusted after me. But I know exactly what you mean. That shouldn't be like the one criteria for the
0: dream man. Do Mm. they want to sleep with me? They didn't,
1: they didn't, they didn't love, they didn't treat Mm. me as one would something that they loved, Mm. you know. And, Mm. you know, I suppose if I was to go back and speak to my, you know, 20 something self, that, that would be what I would flag up
0: and was it cool boys that
1: you liked don't know if it was <laughs> you should see some of my ex paramours oh my god like uh, i can't even i can't even begin so there was no type basically other than just no. tre- treating you terribly <laughs> no type like tall short old young you know uh, yeah it was fucking chaos mm. And um, <laughs> I just feel, I still, to this day, I think the amount of energy I wasted, pining, mm. yearning for these toss pots. They weren't tosspots, they were just... Not you know, interested. They were just not yeah. interested. Yeah. And, no, I've been know, there. And I was quite, you know, I was quite tenacious. Yeah, yeah, it was like that. I was like, you know, verging on stalker. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, is
0: that I managed very well to conceal what a stalker I was to <laughs> <in> my 20s. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, I don't think any of my exes knew... Oh my god! Actually, at any time, how much I was being mad. Um, but did you, what was the kind of maddest thing that you did in pursuit of a boy that that
1: wasn't interested in you? Oh my god! I mean, I don't. I can't even begin to think. I can't. Like there were just so many things. I
0: remember reading you saying, and this is something I used to do, that you'd engineer a lot of chance encounters. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: all the fucking time. Oh, I just happened to be in this pub that you work in. <laughs> but unrequited love sort of was certainly the kind of theme of my 20s. But unrequited
0: love as well, I think, is quite addictive because it goes back to the highs and the lows. Yeah, and it also... It fills your life with a very exciting
1: drama and meaning. And, you know? it's, and also it's the sort of if... It's never really about the other person. It's entirely about you and Mm. and, and feeling less than or, you know, stating your ego. Mm. I don't know, like, that person's like, why? A lot of the time it was, why the fuck aren't you into me? Mm. You know, I was sort of so frustrated. I was like, I think I'm funny, and you know, I don't understand. But I just wasn't cool enough. But that's the
0: thing; I've never been cool. And something I've found is they don't like it when you explain
1: why you should like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're not that. They they're don't like that. that. <laughs> they're not that. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> turns out. But you know, I I do. Yeah, I stand by my kind of. I'm glad I wasn't cool. Because if I'd ended up with one of these people, oh, can it would you have been imagine? disastrous. Awful. awful, awful. Like I never, if one of them had turned around and said, okay, Brian, I love you. I'd be like, ah, yeah. <laughs> away screaming. Yeah. Not interested. Not interested, really. It was, you know, it was, yeah, it's a bit tragic, really. But anyway, I think a lot of people fill their younger years doing that. It's kind of... It's something that you should really grow out of at Mm. the age of 16. Mm. (laughs) And I only managed to grow out of it at the age of 31. But the other
0: thing is as well is that I had it with one particular boy in my 20s. And it did mean that I... And he'd really string me along and then he'd be hot and then he'd be cold. And it did mean... I think that it made me feel like my life had a bit of meaning. I do think that it... It, there's all that other stuff, as you say. There's low self-esteem and there's not feeling and self-sabotage. But I also think it meant I always just had something to fill my yeah, life with, inter- something interesting. Yeah, I could
1: always talking about it. Every time I saw a friend, I would always be talking about. Oh him. my god! I mean, yeah, endlessly, yeah. endlessly. Let's go to the pub and talk about my issues. <laughs> what do you think? I'll buy all your, your drinks. drinks. That's right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Can we go on a night out? I will buy all your drinks and you never have to pay me back. (laughs) (laughs) So I can talk about this boy that's not interested in me and not feel guilty. (laughs) Something that you said in The Wrong Knickers that I found really heartbreaking and I loved is you said... The, the thing that you used to fantasise most about in a relationship seemed to be the thing that all your friends in relationships hated, which was uh, weekend, day-to-day, boring activities. Going to mm. Sainsbury's together, sitting on the sofa together, going to someone's parents' house for a barbecue. That was something that you really
1: craved. Well, weekends were awful as a single person, I found, because... Well that was what like during the week I could kind of keep up that you know, you go out after work and you know, and everyone mm. was sort of on the same page and then you get to the weekend and people are like, What are you doing for the weekend? And you know, they'd be like, Oh, I'm gonna go and, you know, watch my child play football or da, 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 or we're going you know, we're going to a gallery and I was like, I suppose I could have gone to a gallery by myself, but I didn't tend to have friends, single friends like so I basically just spent My weekends really hung over watching The X Factor and eating Domino's pizza. Mm. I hated weekends. I couldn't wait for Monday. Mm. Like, I must have been one of the only people on the planet who was, like, looking forward to going back to work every weekend. I didn't get that Sunday feeling. I was like, yeah! (laughs) My people. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I did really crave that. And... And it's still something I really crave and I really enjoy most. Really? It's the just kind of bowling around. Yeah, I do really like going to St. on Clapham High Street on a Saturday afternoon. It's where you'll find me. When you've spent so long in chaos and I still, like this morning, I just, I got up, like this is a relatively new thing to me is like waking up and wanting to get out of bed. Mm. It's, It's like, I don't, like that's a really new thing to me. Because even if I had to get out, I, you know, obviously I had to get out of bed to make breakfast with my daughter and take, you know, and take her to nursery or school or whatever. But it was like, oh, you know, it was like the weight of the world on my chest, like crushing me. On, um, and it, it's still, you know, it's ridiculous that at the age of 37, I should be like, I can't believe that it's 9am on a Saturday and I've already done all this stuff. But I can't. Yeah. I can't believe it. It's, it's like sort of just being normal. Being normal is such a comfort to me.
0: Yeah, but also but also to be able to function without a weight of shame on you. Yeah, and anxiety. Yeah. But I think for for people and I include myself in this, for people who have felt in the past like they are at the behest of this chaos. That mm. that the, the chaos is bigger than they are. Mm. I think that for those people like I have moments sometimes where I'll walk around my flat and all my work is in on time and all my bills (gasps) are paid and I'm in this flat on my own and I'm not scared and I'm paying for it myself. And I'm like, I can't believe I got there. And as you said, for for many people, that's just like very normal part of growing up. But for me, that's like. A huge thing,
1: yes. Like it is, it's you know the. pay I used to have bailiffs knocking at the door, you know, at four in the morning. Yeah, like oh, so we're recording this at the end of January, and like I've paid my tax yeah, bill, yeah, yeah. And it's so much nicer. Like I just used to, it all used to feel too much, and I was like, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. Ah. And I just would like, it, oh, I, oh, I used to kind of think, oh. Like I'll ignore it and Father Time will pay the councils. Yeah, bill. yeah,
0: yeah. I <laughs> and he do never that. Did. I know I do that with deadlines sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Like if I watch an episode of Mad Men, then Father Time will write, <laughs> we'll write four write paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Time. Did you feel left behind in your twenties?
1: Yeah, a bit. Yes. Yeah, which is probably why that kind of that that bit um Farley and Scott really <laughs> resonated with me it's that thing of like fuck you know people moving in getting married yeah, sort of you know okay. going, oh just throwing dinner parties, like really grown up stuff. And I was like, wait, wait, wait for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And then if I did if I did get invited into that sort of circle, it was it was to tell the stories of the embarrassing things I'd done.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've quoted you recently actually in a piece that I wrote for Red about the history of the single woman. Mm-hmm. And I said something that really resonated with me in your book is when you said you felt like you were wheeled out for anecdotal material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I or that people, I got the sense that you were probably like me, that I felt in my twenties, that everyone wanted to visit me and my world to go and have this like great but time. But they didn't want to be with it the whole time. Yeah, but then they get to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. go back to the flat their parents bought them with their oh, husband.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and you're
0: in Camden with the Dominoes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but you know what? In retrospect, I'm like <laughs> because I got to like live properly, and no, do you that, feel sorry, that? that's really rude to my friends that got married at like 22? No, no, no. Well, I'm interested that you feel that. I'm so, I'm so. Well, look, I'm so relieved that I did all the things I did. I'm relieved that I did all the things I did, and then managed to move on to another to to move on to an, to another phase of my life. Because yeah. I know that doesn't always happen, but it is what it is. And you know, I'm glad I didn't get married at 25 um, because I can tell you now <laughs> we would not be married. <laughs> I would also
0: have a divorce behind me. And did you find? Because I'm still on the first wave of. Um, Weddings. In your book, I remember you saying you, your peak year was twenty-seven as a wedding guest. Oh my
1: god, I hate weddings. <laughs> how many did you go to? Did I don't know, but I hate weddings, Dolly. Let me tell you how much I hate weddings. Okay, they are such a fucking chore, aren't they? The, the number. The oh my god! Now we've done the ceremony, and now we've got to go and now we've got to go and stand and drink without any canapes really and get really drunk in the hot sun in the hot sun yeah and then we sit finally we sit down to have some food but then they stagger it and then oh fuck now i gotta listen to the fucking speeches and then after that you've got then you've got the first dance then you oh my god like when can i go home (laughs) when did it peter out the weddings
0: probably (sighs) when do i stop buying dresses (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably
1: they petered out i don't mm. well actually no i went to a wedding in august oh did you yeah they sort of they change they change that's what happens mm-hmm. right so they go from being the really big you know set piece home counties. oh my god yeah table um table plans uh you know wedding favors they go from being that yeah. to sort of smaller things right more, more kind of ramshackle not ramshackle but more kind of relaxed affairs because by that by the point you know when i got married we went to a registry office and then um and then we went to a pub for some food and then we had a bit of a party in the evening and you know by that point i I'd been to so many weddings mm. that I'd felt like such. Oh, no, they hadn't. I don't want any of my friends who like whose weddings I went to to think thanks, Bryony. <laughs> but I knew that I knew that at the age of thirty three, people were probably a bit like you know they just we had it on a Friday, and I just wanted it to be. I just wanted everyone to get a bit pissed and have mm. like a spit roast, mm. and not like a sexual spit roast. <laughs> We had a spit roast, a pork spit roast. But I hope if if any of the guests at my wedding did have a sexual spit roast, please let me know. I would love to know. <laughs> but it was four years ago now, and I, that that rumor hasn't got back to you. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I was
0: bridesmaid at a wedding where um a threesome took place.
1: Oh yeah, offs. Oh, was that pretty de rigueur? I think I was one. And was it was a male, male, female. Oh, wow. Yeah, quite unusual. (laughs) Bryony, can you tell me a story of passionate love? Well, look, I was thinking I should really, for passionate love, say my husband, Harry. Except it's not really passionate. But that in itself is passionate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't tear each other's clothes off. We don't, you know... We ne- probably never did. I mean, obviously, we've had sex because we've got a child. Um, <laughs> one time. Just that one time. But it's, it's, you know, what is real passionate love? You know, I realized I thought he was very ordinary and he turned out to be extraordinary. And for me, that passionate sort of love is that deep, deep love is something that isn't always kind of like, woo, roller coaster. Mm. It's mm. that sort of more kind of content serenity. And just kind of knowing, you know, it isn't wanting to tear each other's clothes off and fuck all the time, you know. You, that's like once every six months, maybe if we're lucky. But <laughs> it's, but it's it's more it's something more than that, you know. It's it's more more important than that. And he's um, he's held me through some pretty fucking awful times, and um, yeah, I, and so. You know, I feel very passionately yeah. that I love him. Yeah, it's like mm. I'm sort of balling up my fist here, mm. like I want to punch him. No, I don't. But you know, I feel very passionately um, about you know what he's done for me and how he's supported me.
0: And how did it feel? Because I was thinking earlier today, I was thinking about your kind of trajectory in history with love. Was it strange to go from so long of being kind of on your own and footloose and fancy free mm.
1: to then this huge relationship it wasn't that strange I mean as a, as with any of these things you think it's going to sort of turn up and it's going to be fireworks and all of that and it was more like a sort of warm front slowly coming in you know yeah, yeah and um and we were living together quite within about four or five months but again it wasn't like this massive decision it just sort of happened quite organically pregnant I was pregnant within eight months we don't argue. Like, I argue with him. And he sort of kind of just goes, for fuck's sake, why do you have to be... Like, uh, when I was in treatment, I um, I was like, you never... He's quite sort of, you know, he's the son of an army colonel. He's very different to me, put yeah. it that way. And I was like, you never tell me how you feel about me. Why don't you just tell me how you probably feel about me? And he was like, okay, okay, I'll tell you what I think about you. I think that you're a fucking nightmare. <laughs> You're always arguing with me, but you are the most amazing person I've ever met. And I was like, why don't you tell me that more often? <laughs> He's like, because you're such a cunt. <laughs> so that kind of sums up our relationship. It's not, you know, it's not perfect, but it's 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 good. It's good.
0: After the wrong knickers, you wrote mad girl. Yes. And it's a very different book to The Wrong Knickers in terms of its subject matter. As you say, you talk about your struggle with mental health in it, you talk about how you've suffered from OCD, bulimia, depression. What was it that made you write it? It was it came from an article, a response to an article, didn't it? So
1: yeah, so the winter after The Wrong Knickers came out, I had a massive crash. Like I'd I'd had I've had obsessive compulsive disorder since I was twelve, and people always get. In fact, I liked it when you said in your book there's a section on the most irritating things people say, and one of them was I'm a bit OCD.
0: Someone very close to me suffers from it, and it really angers me actually when people say I'm a bit OCD in reference to the fact they like dettol kitchen spray. Yeah, or
1: they're like organized because yeah, I am yeah. not. Like my husband always jokes, why don't you have the good type of OCD? Because <laughs> <laughs> I like you like you see my desk at work or. <laughs> I mean it's like fucking a horror show. But I have a form of OCD called pure O which is kind of in the head and it you know so it's I kind of describe OCD as your brain refusing uh, to believe what your eyes can see. Right. So be it that the candle's not off or the oven's not off or Mm -hmm. the iron's turned off or that you haven't just run over a child or molested a child. It's pretty dark. A lot of people with Pure O kind of spend a lot of time obsessively worrying that they've done something terrible. So, you know, we've all had that thought where someone hands us a baby mm. and you're like what if i just threw the baby on the floor yeah, you yeah. know logically that you're not going to do that it's just a random brain thing mm. um but someone with ocd will be like oh my god i had that thought that must make make me a terrible human being so anyway i found myself in a very bad episode of pure o and then um you know i'd written this like honest book and everyone was like lauding me for my honesty and I was like, but there's this whole side to me that I haven't like I felt I felt more able to write about a man snorting cocaine off my boobs as I'd written about in the wrong knickers or picking up a colleague in an STI clinic <laughs> as I had written in the wrong knickers. I felt more able to do that than I did to write about the kind of background to all of this, which yeah. was which was my OCD. And um, so I was sitting down to write that column I do in the back of Stella and um, I, I just started writing about it. And um, it was like, the response was insane. Yeah, I got hundreds and hundreds of letters and emails and cards from people saying, me too, if not OCD, then some other form of mental illness. Yeah, And the more I wrote about it, the more people would get in touch. And then my publishers were like, why don't you write about this? And um, I wanted it to be, okay, so it's called Mad Girl, A Happy Life with a Mixed Up Mind. I wanted it to kind of change the perceptions of mental illness because the only kind of cultural references I had for mental illness were people rocking back and forward in a padded cell. Mm. And that wasn't what it was like for me. Well, because from the outside, you were very high functioning. High functioning, successful, you know. and, um, And so I kind of wanted to kind of, I wanted to change that and say what it was like for me. And for the people that increasingly I was hearing from in their kind of hundreds and thousands. And um, so I wrote Mad Girl. And then, of course, I got really ill <laughs> writing Mad Girl because who knew that writing about your mental illness might kind of bring it out. Of um, course. And as you said, it's very solitary. It's sitting yeah. in a room. And it's having
0: to do time travel, which no one tells you about yeah, writing oh a God. memoir. It's literally getting in a time machine every day and going back to those thoughts and who you were. And it's it's it can feel very real.
1: Yeah. And to things that you just sort of would rather kind of have glazed yeah, over, yeah, totally. But as you said, if you're <laughs> if you're going to write this stuff, you have to do it honestly. Yeah, there's so no you, point. You
0: can't avoid revisiting those moments that are inevitably going to make you very sad,
1: painful. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I got quite ill, and then and then I, <laughs> and this is the weird thing. So this all kind of happened. And none of it. None of this was a plan. None of this was a plan. And then I, I went. Um, I'd heard that exercise was good for mental health. I'd like read it. And I was like, well, you know, I had tried my hardest to to be the first person to discover that drinking all the alcohol and taking mm. all the drugs mm. was good for your mental health. But mm. it, it, I just had to accept it wasn't working out for yeah. me. Yeah. And I was like, maybe these experts have like got a point. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of trudged out of the house one morning and I went for a run or what, you know, more of a shuffle and a Hop and I kind of, but I was um I was listening to a a podcast about Carson McCullers who wrote The Heart as a Lonely Hunter and she tried to kill herself several times and she ended up dying of alcoholism in her fifties. But there was this archive audio footage of her saying, sometimes it feels like everyone's part of a we except for me. And it mm. completely, it resonated so much. Like yeah. I kind of fell over. Yeah, And I went back and I was like, I've got this idea. I've got this idea. Like why? Because there I was on Clapham Common and looking at all these groups of people who were kind of working out together and socialising and being together a part of a community. And I was like, why is there nothing like this for people with mental health issues? Mm. And I kind of looked around and I realised that you know, the bus going past, there were probably statistically three or four people on that bus yeah. who this year that year were gonna have mental health issues or who are having them right now. Yeah. The, on the, the houses I was walking past, you know, every fourth one, there was probably gonna be someone behind the door hiding under their duvet right yeah. now. Yeah. And I was like, we are everywhere. Yeah. Right? And yet there is nothing there is nothing for us, you know, this sort of and, um, so I kind of went, I went back home and I was like, I'm going to create this walking group for, you know, people with mental health issues. And my husband was like, what if a load of nutters turn up? I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> but anyway, so I had this idea for this thing called mental health makes, which started two years ago, actually. Um, when, like 20 people turned up. And then now we're in like thirty different places around the I UK. I went on the website at the
0: weekend, it's like amazing. And the tagline is find your we. Yeah. And, and um, I was and I was looking at the events, it's like everywhere events are happening. Constantly. Everywhere. Yeah. And it's yeah. just
1: people come people just there's a website is www.mentalhealthmates.co.uk. And it's just like people in the you know, create little walks in their own communities because they know those areas best. And but it's been amazing. And from that I got our <laughs> I mean, it's all kind of snowballed into this quite crazy kind of thing from that. And then around the same time I started Mental Health Mates, it was announced that Heads Together, the mental health charity launched by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry was gonna be the um, charity of the London Marathon in two thousand and seventeen. And I got like invited along to the launch and found myself agreeing to run the London Marathon. And so, now you're like a campaigner. So now I've turned into a campaigner. Yeah. And I, you know, I've you know, interviewed Prince Harry about his mental health issues and it's all it's all really weird. Like if I look back at last year, I'm like, whoa, did any of that happen? And it's amazing. Like, it's, well, yeah, well, I was going to say this kind of relates to love because I was going to
0: ask you about this new collective love that you have in your life and the fact that
1: You must feel so close now to so many people, Mm. even people perhaps that you'll never meet. Yeah. You know, we've all got something in common. And I think the thing about mental illness is that it lies to you and it tells you you're a freak and it tells you you're alone and it tells you that no one's going to understand how you're feeling, which is bollocks, right? It works much like an abuser, you know, through a kind of culture of silence and the moment that you blow that apart and realize that other there are loads of other people out there like you the moment it, it starts to fall away yeah so you know it's i don't think it's any coincidence that shortly after you know I did the marathon and then I got sober you know it was all starting to make sense to me you know I was meeting these other people and my life is like i can't i can't even you know i don't want to sound smug but it is you know i still have days where i'm like yeah. you yeah. know but i kind of know that it'll pass yeah. and it you know and i've got this community i've got people i can call on you know yeah. and sort of so yeah i'm i'm very lucky i'm incredibly lucky
0: i think i know the story of your everlasting love
1: my everlasting love is my daughter, Edie. So she's how old now? Four and a half? Four and a half. Very important to remember the half. Four and a half, mummy. Four and a half. <laughs> and nearly five. And what kind of kid is she? What's she like? Oh, I mean, she can be a real asshole sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like her mom it's for safe to say fair to say she takes after her mother <laughs> she is hilarious she's just got all this energy and I just I literally I just want to kiss her the whole time and you know like this morning she just oh she, I just you know like I it's such a cliche but I didn't ever know I could love anyone quite mm. as much as I do her and it's weird because I get to the, I, now at that, well, I'm long past the stage where people start saying, you're going to have another one, you're going to have another one. And I don't know if I could because mm. I can't imagine ever loving anything as much as I love Edie. Yeah. I know it's possible <laughs> because, you know, I'm one of three. Others do it. Others do it. But I don't know. I don't know if it's for me. Like, no, I, I'm not, i I'm not, I'm not for one moment saying that people that have more than one child don't love The next child as much as their first child. Um, But it's, I don't know, it's just, yeah, that's everlasting love. Like, And I hope, I hope (laughs) that she will always love me.
0: Does your head ever let you go to a point of her being a teenage girl? And
1: Yes, all the time. But basically what's going to happen is this, Dolly, is that if she is even a teen, as badly behaved as I am, she's staying on a leash till she's 45. Unless what happens quite a lot with the oh, dullness like yeah exactly yeah. yeah I don't know I don't, the, the signs are not pointing in that
0: direction <laughs> Have you turned out to be the sort of parent that you thought
1: you'd be No I'm quite strict hypocritically <laughs> <laughs> Um but no I I don't know I'm yeah I'm just I don't know it, it doesn't feel I don't know um I worry about it every day. I worry I just know how much is you know I, do you know what I I appreciate more than ever the work <laughs> that my parents did and you know how it's I know I can't I'm not articulating myself at all well but I just I try to do my best for her and all I can do is bring her up partly that was why I wrote <laughs> About my mental health issues because I was like, I don't want my daughter to grow up in the same situation, in the same world I grew up in mm. where no one spoke about this stuff. Mm. Mm. And um, and I want her, you know, it's entirely possible that she will, you know, have issues. And but I just hope that she can talk to me about them because mm. we all have issues. But mm. as long as we can talk to people about them, it's fine they're fine you know they, everything has a solution everything is is doable even if it doesn't feel like it right now everything everything can be got through there is an, there is the other side and um, I just think everyone's doing their best yeah yeah um, be kind kindness is much underrated no I agree and love just you know let people know that you love them <laughs> so cheesy I I like this is a podcast about love I like end with a nice cheese course I think it's really just tell someone that you love them because you know you don't I was you never know what tomorrow is going to bring or the next 10 minutes is going to bring um yeah Briony Gordon I love you I love you Dolly (laughs) thank Thank you you so much for sharing your love stories with me Uh, my my next love story is with you (laughs) (laughs)
0: you for listening to love stories you can rate review and subscribe on itunes to give the series a boost and help others find it and you can buy my book everything i know about love published by fig tree in waterstones on amazon or in all good bookshops or buy the audiobook on audible love stories is recorded in the penguin studio in london the music was composed and recorded by lauren benstead tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories